we have been studying the book of Acts the last uh, several months, and we'll continue on this morning. We're in Acts 13, the passage that Isaac read for us um, this morning. So will you pray with me as we give attention to God's Word? Lord, we do want to hear you and hear your voice this morning. It's not the words of men, and certainly not my words, O God, that will bring life and hope to us. But it's the words of the living God. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take these words, this scripture, this word that is living and active, and bring it to our lives, to our hearts, and apply it, Lord, in the way that you know we need. Some of us come and we're discouraged. Some of us come and we're just content and happy and elated with life. Lord, we come with struggling with certain sins and guilt and shame. Lord, we need correction. We need direction. And so we pray that you would provide that through your word this morning as you display before the eyes of our heart Jesus once again. For we long to see him. So open our eyes that we might behold Jesus. But we ask in his name. Amen. In our study in Acts, we've been tracing out and looking at the advance of the church as the church of Jesus Christ has been progressing and advancing outside of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and going to the ends of the earth, to these Gentile cities. But along with this advance, what we've seen is the church advances as the gospel is proclaimed. The church doesn't advance apart from the proclamation of the gospel. And what we've seen thus far in these 13 chapters or 12 and a half chapters of Acts is we've seen and considered sermons from Peter, from Stephen, from Philip. And Luke has told us in Acts 9 that Paul preached. He preached in Jerusalem, Damascus. However, it's not until here, this chapter, chapter 13, in this part of the scriptures, that we finally come to a sermon of the Apostle Paul. And we understand and come to, you know, face to face with the contents of his sermon. And it's no surprise that what he preached, he preached Jesus. What else can you preach? All right? Do you remember a couple weeks ago, I asked you the question, how well do you know the gospel? How well do you know the gospel? Are you able to distinguish that which is a false gospel from an authentic biblical gospel? You see, as we consider Paul's message of the gospel of Jesus Christ... We want to hear it with ears that we can better understand the gospel. But also, we want to hear it so it gets pressed into our own soul, into our own lives, so that when we have opportunity to tell other people, to tell your coworkers, to tell your friends, to tell your neighbors about Jesus, you don't simply give a feel-good story. Don't simply give your testimony. If you have an opportunity, tell them about the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to salvation to those who believe. See, it's the gospel that's powerful. That's why we want to know it. And we want to have it pressed into our souls. So that's what we want to look at today. 
Now, let me give you some context. If you're joining us for the first time, all right, here's what's happening. Paul and Barnabas, they've been set apart by the Holy Spirit. They were gathering with the church in Antioch in Syria, and they were set apart by the Holy Spirit and sent out as missionaries by the Holy Spirit. And the church in Antioch and Syria confirmed that and commissioned them and sent them off as well. They set sail on the first leg of their missionary journey. They go to Cyprus. Now remember, Cyprus is Barnabas's home territory. That's where he's from. Recall that they are on that island of Cyprus and they're preaching the gospel and they see the conversion of the governor of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus, despite the opposition from the sorcerer Elimus. And we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Accompanying Paul and Barnabas is John Mark. Remember, John Mark is Barnabas' cousin, and he's the author of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark. Now, that becomes important later on, as we'll see. Now, what happens is they leave Cyprus. Okay, I think there's a slide. If you give us a slide, they, you see where Antioch is, of Syria, that's on the right, that Antioch. They go into Cyprus and Paphos, and that's where they have this conversation with Sergius Paulus. They leave Paphos, they go to the port city of Italia, and then they go up inland to Perga. Now what's interesting, they go to Perga, and Luke doesn't give us any information of what happened in Perga. We don't know if they ministered there. The only thing we know is that John Mark left them in Perga, and he goes back to Jerusalem. Now that is going to become a thorn in their side, and a conflict All right, that they're going to have to resolve later on. And we'll come back to that in a couple months, maybe. All right. They leave Perga, they go a hundred miles north into this, which into Antioch of Pisidia. All right, this is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. They have to go up three thousand six hundred feet, go across the Taurus Mountains to get to Antioch and Pisidia. Paul and Barnabas on the Sabbath day, when the Jews gathered to worship, they go into the synagogue. That's their habit. They go into the synagogue. And while they're in the synagogue, right, they hear the, the elements of a synagogue worship. And the first element is the Shema. Did you know that's what Danny read to you at the beginning of the service? The Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your might. That's how they began the service. And then they would read from the law. They would read from the prophets. And afterwards, they would have a word of exhortation, a sermon. And so the ruler of the synagogue turns to these missionaries and says, Hey, Barnabas, Paul, do you want to give a word of exhortation to us? I mean, gosh, think of how good God is. How, how easy he makes evangelism. I mean, don't you just want that? You just, you just want someone to say, tell me about Jesus. And I hope you don't mess it up. <laughs> I mean, what an opportunity. And Paul, he takes the lead. He stands up. And this, this is interesting. You, if you read through Acts, people do this all the time. They, they motion with their hand. <laughs> 
And you read, they're always doing this. Anytime they're going to speak, they move their hand. I wonder what they do. It's probably because people are so loud. They probably have a greeting like we do. And they have to say, stop, stop. You know, when you sit down now. And he, he gives them a message. And you can break down the message into three parts. And the three things that he says, and this is what I want to highlight. It's a message about Jesus, and he says Jesus is the goal of God's gracious work in biblical history. And then Jesus is confirmed as the Messiah by virtue of his resurrection. And Jesus alone justifies sinners. That's what he tells them. All right? So let's look at the first one. Jesus is the goal of God's gracious work in biblical history. See, Paul knows his audience. Right? He's talking to Jews and to God-fearers. God-fearers who are Gentiles who are attracted to Judaism, but they weren't circumcised. They know the scriptures well. And so Paul rehearses with them the biblical history that they have in common. He's on common ground with them. And so he begins, you know, he says, remember, remember our history? Remember God chose our fathers? This is what he does. He rehearses their history together. He chose our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, remember the time when we were enslaved in Egypt and God, you know, delivered us? Remember when we were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years? God put up with us for 40 years? Remember when we got to the promised land, there were other nations there, and God destroyed those other nations so that we could have that land flowing with milk and honey? Remember? Remember the period of judges, when God raised up judges and deliverers and saviors for us, when we were without a king? And then remember when God raised up a king, King Saul for us? And then remember King David? You know what Paul has just done? He's gone and given them, we recounted nearly 2,000 years of biblical history. Man, nearly 2,000 years of biblical history. You know? And you can imagine the people in the synagogue are smiling, all the, all the Jewish leaders there, and, and they're stroking their beards, you know, like Thomas would be doing if he were there, stroking his beard, you know, nodding, giving a good Jewish Amen, Hosanna. Hallelujah. You know, preach it, Paul. No, he's doing, he's doing great. But here's the catch. If they had understood and looked a little closer and deeper into the story, the history that he just unfolded for them, they would not have only said amen. They would have said, ouch. That hurts. That hurts when you bring up my nasty past. That hurts. Why would they have said, ouch? Because these moments that he highlights in biblical history display their sinfulness in very clear ways. If they would have just thought about it, right? Paul's going to speak about the grace of God. But you never understand the grace of God unless there's a backdrop of the darkness of our sin. And, and this is what he's pointing to. You see, and how do you see it? Well, let me just go back through this. When God called Abram, where was he? Who was he worshiping? He was an Ur of the Chaldeans. He was with his daddy there. And they, according to Joshua, they were probably worshipping the moon god in Ur of the Chaldeans. He wasn't worshipping Yahweh. Think about his grandson Jacob, a stellar character. No! 
No, he was a liar. He was a cheater. He was a deceiver. His name means supplanter. Oh, not a very pious man. And after they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, and they wandered in the desert for 40 years, oh, just happy to be there, right? Just obeying the Lord every moment of the day. Oh, no, you read the story. They murmured, they complained, they rebelled, they disobeyed God time and time again. So that the scripture says God had to put up with them. Oh, it wasn't very pretty. But then, after that, what about the period of Judges? A dark time. A dark time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's the refrain. Because there was no king in Israel. And so the people would rebel. They would be oppressed by a nation, another nation, and ruled over by another nation. They would cry out to God. God would send them a judge, a deliverer, a savior. They would walk with the Lord for a while. They would rebel again. This was their cycle. It's a deplorable period in their history. And then, finally, Saul comes along. Oh, yeah, a great king. (laughs) No, disobeys the Lord, and God's going to remove him. And Saul spends a long time trying to kill David because he's filled with jealousy. And then toward the end of his life, what does he do? He consults a medium because he wants to contact the dead. Now, that's a real righteous person. Oh, but, but, but it ends on a better note, right? It ends with King David. Oh, yes, just an adulterer and a murderer. Do you see, if you begin to look at the history a little more closely, not only was there common ground, but ouch. Ouch. This is a history of God being gracious to sinners. It's interesting, if you were to look at the verbs in this section, there are nine action verbs, and the subject of each of those verbs is God. God chose. God delivered. God gave them judges. God gave them a Saul. God raised up David. It's God who always acts. You want to know about the good news? Don't start with what you do. Start with what God does. God acts first. It's God's initiative to sinners all the time. That's what we have to begin in the gospel and understanding the gospel. It begins with God and how He works in our sinful history and how He works not to destroy us. Think about it. Why is it we're not destroyed? Why is it that God hasn't just eliminated us? Because he's been gracious to sinners like you in me. And he's poured out his grace and his mercy. This is how the gospel begins to unfold in our lives. You've experienced that, have you not? I mean, look at your past. Look at your story. Look at your history. Are you not amazed that you're still alive and that God has given you mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace that he hasn't discarded you, but he's patiently carried you and put up with you? This is where the gospel begins. Well, Paul doesn't stop there because when he's talking about the history, he says there's a goal. And the goal is, as this history of God is unfolding, he's telling us it's not aimless. It's going somewhere. It has a specific destiny, a specific goal in mind. So in verses 22 to 23, after mentioning King David, 
Paul skips, he goes from David and he skips a thousand years, almost a thousand years of biblical history and he says, from King David, God brought to Israel, this sinful people, a Savior, Jesus Christ, just as God promised. He's the Savior of the sinful people and the sinful world. And I'm sure the Jews didn't see this coming. How could you do that, Paul? Talk about Jesus. I mean, hold on a second. And he's going he's gonna to say something about Jesus in the next point we'll get to, but I want to say this just very briefly. Jesus Christ is no afterthought in the plan and the purposes of God. Jesus Christ is the central figure of history, of your story, and anybody's story of all history. Because what we need, we who live in space and time, we need a Savior. We need God to come and save us out of the murky history that we have made. And this is so countercultural. Last week, I read an article in Christianity Today it talked about a woman, some of you may have read her blog in the past, Glennon Doyle Melton. Uh, very well known in some circles. And uh, she's done something that, well, just, she divorced her husband, she has two kids, and now she's in a relationship with another woman. So it's kind of been a big deal, all right, because she claims to be Christian. And here's what she said. She says, God should be equally and unequivocally committed to my happiness as I am. You see, in her worldview, and in the worldview of a lot of people, the main thing in my story, in history, is my happiness. God serves me so that I am happy. That's what He ought to do. Sorry. Lo siento. But yet, isn't it true that we like to think that our happiness is God's highest goal in our stories? Why? Because that fits our consumer-focused mindset. It fits this, you deserve happiness. You deserve it in your marriage. You deserve it in your job. You deserve it in, this is what it is. It's all about your happiness. Right? But the scriptures tell us something different. God's ultimate goal in history is Jesus. And He wants to unite you and unite Jesus to you. And when Jesus is united to you and you to Jesus, and then you know what happens? There are moments when you enjoy profound happiness and glorious satisfaction and your heart is just so full of joy and you go, I can barely stand it. I hope you felt that sometime in your life as a Christian, but you also know that as a Christian, because of your union with Christ, that not only do you experience happiness in Christ, but you also experience a sharing in His suffering. You see, if you think the ultimate goal in history is your happiness, what do you do with suffering? And what do you do with Jesus whose ultimate goal was not even His own happiness? What do you do with that? You see, the ultimate goal in history 
and the unfolding story is Jesus. And this is where Paul takes these people. And secondly, he, tell, he tells us as Jesus is confirmed as a Messiah by his resurrection. Now, why does Paul have to do this? Because he's anticipating a question that they may have. The people, you know, here they are in the synagogue and they're listening to this and they're doubting. Right? You've shared the gospel with people and they go, ah, nah, can't be true. Nah. They're skeptical. People are skeptical. They doubt. They have questions. You know, how, you know, you can almost hear these people in the synagogue say, how can we be sure that this Jesus is the Christ of God? I mean, after all, after all, you know, back in Jerusalem, they didn't recognize him as the Messiah. Right? Isn't that what we read? They rejected him as the Messiah. They didn't view him as a Messiah. As a matter of fact, they thought he was an imposter. And so what did they do? They condemned him and they had him executed. <laughs> they had him executed. So he hung on a cross. And he was buried in a grave. He's dead. How in the world can he be the Savior if he died? And so Paul is not afraid to talk about the death of Jesus and anticipate their question. It's as if Paul said, I know what you're thinking. I know you're trying to make sense of this. And I know that you're thinking Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Cursed is anyone that's hung on a tree. How in the world can this Jesus who was hung on a tree, nailed to the cross, how in the world could he, this one who was cursed of God, how could he be the Savior and the Messiah of God? It makes no sense. Paul's anticipating that. And he says, yep, you're right. He was rejected and he was executed. But what you don't know is that even in his execution, it was all done according to the scriptures. God had planned it all, every single thing that they did to him. Everything was planned out. And it's written in the prophets. And you guys read the prophets, but you don't get it. But verse 30 is the clincher. After talking about the death of Jesus, he says, But, but God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And I know this because one day I was traveling to Damascus to persecute these Christians, but the risen Christ came to me. We had an encounter and he changed my life. The risen one changed my life. Not the dead one. And he said, you don't believe me. Go to Jerusalem. There are 500 witnesses. There are 500 people that had seen the raised Christ, the risen Christ. Go and talk to them. Talk to the apostles. Talk to all these people. You see, Paul deals with their doubts by going to the resurrected Christ. But it's interesting what he does. He cites several writings, Davidic writings. Right? He cites the Psalms. Two Psalms. Psalm 2 and Psalm 16. All right? Both written by David. And he says these Psalms in verse 7 of Psalm 2 and verse 10 of Psalm 16, they're both fulfilled by the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm not going to camp there, though I would like to. I'm going to jump, take you to the other passage, Isaiah 55, verse 3, because that's the other passage that Paul cites. In verse 34, it says... And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. 
Why does he quote this prophet, Isaiah? Why say, why quote this, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David? How can this be true? You're saying that God has promised blessings through David. But hold on a second. David is dead. (laughs) David's body's corrupted. It's decomposed, eaten by worms. How can there be any blessing coming from David when he's no longer reigning and ruling on the throne of Israel? How can there be blessing? And Paul says, you just hold on, hold on. I'm going to explain it to you. And this is what he does. It's as if he's saying, do you remember, do you remember the covenant promise that God made to David? And he says, God promised to David that he would have an everlasting throne. There would be an everlasting dynasty that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. Right? This is what he promised David. One of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. And you go, that is not David, but rather that is David's son, Jesus Christ. He's the son of David. You see what he's saying there? He's the son of David. This is how you can have the blessing. Because see, when God raised Jesus from the dead, this one who is the descendant of David, and you go and read it through the scriptures, he says, he raised him from the dead. And where is he now? Where's Jesus now? Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. He's on the throne of heaven. He's ruling and he's reigning and he will reign forever and ever because he's conquered sin and he's conquered death and is a ruling and reigning king. He has all authority. He has all power to give you every blessing. Every certain and reliable and sure blessing of God. Now that is amazing. Because you know what happens oftentimes when we, when we think about the gospel? We talk about the death of Jesus. Rightly so. Because the death of Jesus, as he was cursed on the cross for us, deals with the curse of our sin upon us. But there's something else that I need, brothers and sisters. There's something else that you need. You don't simply need Jesus to deal with your past and with your sin. You need power for living. You need the blessing of new life. You need the blessing of the living God working in you to change you. Where does that come from? It comes from the risen Jesus. The one who is ruling now. Who is active now. Who has all authority over your sin. And who can change you. Do you see, in the gospel you need both to speak of the death of Jesus, but the resurrection of our Savior. And this is where he goes and impresses upon them. And just think about this. There is no blessing that God wants you to have that you won't receive. There is no blessing that God wants you to have that you won't receive from Jesus because Jesus will never be dethroned. Because no one will ever rebel against Him. Because no one will ever stop Him from blessing you when He wants to bless you. If you think of Jesus in any other way, you have lost sight of the exalted Lord. He is Lord and Christ, the reigning King. Oh, may that truth be pressed into your life. Is there something that you're struggling with? You go, Lord, I just feel the curse of this sin in my life. 
I'm struggling. I'm struggling a lot. I, I, I want to change, but I can't change. I would urge you to cry out to the risen Savior. Ask Him to pour out upon your life the transforming power that He alone can give to change you. He will not defraud you. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours in Christ Jesus. And finally, Paul says, Jesus alone justifies the sinner. In verse 38 to 41, he presses the truth of the gospel down deeply into the lives. He says, let it be known to you. It's as if he's saying, look, you could assent mentally. You could say, okay, I get it. You know, Jesus is a descendant of David. He's the Messiah. But Paul is not content with an intellectual understanding. He wants to press it into their lives. He wants them to believe, and he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Savior, is the Messiah. And when you do believe, what happens? There's a promise. And what's the promise? You will have your sins forgiven. You will be justified. And so Paul says, through Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. I find it interesting that Paul didn't have to catalog the sins. You know, there's sometimes you go, you read through the scripture and there's a whole list of sins, right, that Paul identifies. He doesn't, he doesn't identify any of them, really. Why? And maybe there's another truth for us to learn that sometimes we just know it. We don't really need anybody to tell us. Because sometimes we just know that we have sinned against God, we've sinned against our conscience, and we carry around this guilt and this shame, and Jesus has come precisely to take it upon yourself. So I ask you, why do you carry it? Why do you carry it? When Jesus has come to take it from you. You know, some of us live life as if we don't need forgiveness of our sins. And there are some people out there that, right, they say, nah, I don't even think about it. And yet, there are other people who've committed some sins that are so horrific that they think those sins can never, ever be forgiven. Do you have sins that you think, this is it, God will never forgive me for this one? I heard a pastor tell of a time when he was providing some training uh, for women at a Christian pregnancy medical center. And there he met a young lady who was interested in volunteering. And he asked her, well, why are you interested in volunteering at this clinic? And as they talked about it, it was obvious that she was racked with guilt. And why? Because she had aborted her baby 15 years earlier. She sobbed, she sobbed. And she told the story. And the pastor asked her a very hard thing. He says, have you ever repented of your sin? And he said very directly, he says, have you ever repented of murdering your child? And have you ever gone to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? And she says, no. Christ could never forgive me for that. Christ could never forgive me for that. And he responded immediately, Oh, yes, he can. He forgave Moses, who murdered an Egyptian. He forgave David, who committed premeditated adultery and murder of Uriah. 
He can forgive you. She looked at him. Do you, do you think he can really forgive me? Oh, yes. This is why he came for sinners like you and me, so messed up and broken. He didn't come for good people. And she said, I've never heard that before. If you have never heard it before, I'm going to tell you clearly. Jesus Christ forgives sinners. Jesus Christ has come into your story, into your world, into our history, and he offers to all those who believe forgiveness of sins. You don't have to continue to carry your burden of shame and guilt and hopelessness. And he urges this upon those who hear as I urge it upon you. Believe in the Lord. Believe in Him and you will have forgiveness of your sins. Of course, some people think, oh, that can't be. That's just way too easy. That's too simple. No, I, I need to go barefooted and climb Monte Cristo Rey. You know? With a lot of goat heads. So my feet bleed a lot. You know, I, I need to really work at, you know, trying to get this forgiveness from God. You can imagine the Jews hearing this saying, what about the law of Moses? Right? What about the law of Moses? Isn't it true that we have to try to keep the law of Moses? We've got to keep the commandments of God. And it's by working at it, by earning it, you know, obeying these commandments, we're going we're gonna to find acceptance with God. And Paul says, no. Oh, man, that's tough. You tell a Jew, no, to the law of Moses? He says, no, you're not going to get forgiveness of your sins by trying to obey the law of Moses. And notice what he says in his verses. He says, he uses, you're not going to be freed. All right. He uses the word freed uh, from your sins. You're not to be freed. He says, he who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by, from by the law of Moses. That word that's translated there as freed is actually the word from which we get justified. That's why maybe some of your translations would have justified. And justified means that, that you, are de- it's, you are declared righteous before God, that you are in a right standing with God. That means everything that impedes your relationship with God is removed, right? And Paul says, no, you're not going to be justified. You're not going to be made right with God. You're not going to have your sins forgiven and therefore made right with God by you trying to fulfill the law of Moses. You cannot do that. It'll kill you. It'll crush you. Why? The law is merciless. Because if you fail in one law, you're condemned in all of it. He says, don't even try. And here's the problem, brothers and sisters. And there are lots of people here on the border that think of trying to get right with God as if they were scaling a rock wall. How many of you scale the rock wall? I know the Hutchinson family has. They do it in their sleep, I think. And you know, you know what it's like to scale a rock wall. You know, you, you, you get your foot and you put it on one peg there, down there and you're and you, nice and firm. You go, okay, I got that one. And then, you, and then you reach up for another place where you can put, put your hands and grip. I got that law. And then you keep on going, oh, I got that law. Boy, this is really hard, but, I, but I'm getting the third commandment now. I'm going to the fourth one. Boy, this is tough. And, but, but surely, I keep on working hard at it. I'm going to get to the top. 
and I'll meet God there at the top. Bogus. Why is it bogus? Because you're dead. Because you're spiritually dead and you're not even capable of putting your hand or lifting your foot to make one step toward God. You're spiritually dead. And so the gospel is that that's not you by the law trying to make your way to God. Rather, it's God who humbles himself in the person of Jesus Christ and became a man and came down to us who were spiritually dead and made us alive together with him. That's the good news. I could not raise myself up to God, but God himself has come and raised me up to newness of life in Jesus. So if you've ever gone scaling, what you really need is a person who's on top of the rope to come down, pick you up, and carry you back up. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And Paul ends with a warning. I suppose this is not a good way to end a sermon, is it? <laughs> with a warning. But this is how he ends. All right. And he quotes Habakkuk 1.5. And there the prophet Habakkuk gives a warning of judgment. Why? Because see, God was doing something they couldn't even imagine. That God was bringing judgment to the unbelieving Israel by means of the Babylonians. And as if, God, as if Paul is saying, look, they failed to believe what God was doing in their midst. Don't you fail to believe what God is doing in your midst to the person of Jesus Christ? Otherwise, there's judgment. Do you believe? Do you believe? Have you come to know that your sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done? That Jesus has entered into your story, your history. Jesus who's been gracious to you. God who's been gracious to you when he could have eliminated you, right? Destroyed you all along, but he hasn't. Don't spurn. Don't scoff at the grace of God that you've received. But rather, give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And hear the words when you do. Your sins are forgiven. You are mine. I will take you to glory with me. I read a story yesterday about a a pastor who says, he's a pastor of a church, I think it was a Lutheran church, and and he noticed that every, every Sunday there was a group of seven people who were attending his church, and they would sit in the back rows of the church. And after about 15 minutes of being in the service, they would all stand up and leave. And this went on for months. And finally, one day, he caught up with them. And he says, why do you guys leave after about 15 minutes? And one of the people in the group said, look, we're members of another church. But we like what you guys do here in your church service. Because it's something you do here that we don't hear in our service. Well, what's that? Well, every Sunday... So at the beginning of your service, after sins are confessed, you say, your sins are forgiven because of what Christ Jesus has done. And we're so burdened with our sins, and we come, and we need to hear it. And we hear it, and then we leave. I hope you don't leave today 
without hearing from Jesus in your soul because you believe in him, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful. We're grateful for Jesus. Grateful for the forgiveness that he has purchased by his blood. Grateful that what he hung as the cursed one on the cross, it wasn't because of his sins, but because of ours. He was cursed so that we would not be cursed, but rather blessed. He was judged so that we might be accepted by you. And we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus' death, resurrection, exaltation. We thank you that you've brought it to us, Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would press it into our souls. And this week, we ask that you would give us an opportunity to speak of this gospel to our neighbors and co-workers and friends. Oh Lord, and give us joy as we do. For we love him who has first loved us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.